Well, friends, we have been continuing through the Catechism, which itself is taking us through the words of the Apostles' Creed. And you can see there that we've now come to this article of sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And you'll remember, hopefully as well, that uh, this is part of Christ's exaltation. We have already passed through his humiliation, right? He was, he was uh, born in a very humble way, right? He lived in a very uh, low way. He had uh, no place to call his, his home, right? He was suffered. He was judged by Pontius Pilate. He suffered. He died. He was buried. And right, remember the lowest of the low of his humiliation. He, he uh, endured the very sufferings of hell himself uh, in, in his soul. That was Christ's humiliation, a, a step downward, each step taking him lower in humiliation. But then Christ also was exalted, and that was Easter morning, right? Resurrection was the first step of Christ's exaltation. Now the, now the direction turns, doesn't it? And Christ begins to arise. He begins to be exalted. He, he, on the third day, he rose again from the dead, says our creed. And the second step, which we considered last week, he ascended into heaven, I realize that, uh, I always realize these things after you preach the sermon, right? That you may not have known it, but last week's Sunday evening was meant to be a, an ascension, a sermon on the ascension of Christ, right? That Job was looking for an advocate in heaven, and Christ has ascended into heaven and is now our advocate at the right hand of the Father. Well, at any rate, so that was his ascension into heaven, and now having ascended into heaven, he is given the seat at the right hand of God the Father, and that's where we find ourselves this morning. And our catechism is asking us why the next words, and sits at the right hand of God. So this is our catechism, the question, and the answer given us is Christ ascended to heaven, there to show that he is head of his church, the one through whom the Father governs all things. So this is what we hope to consider then this evening. Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, when you read that in the Creed, and when you ponder that, that thought of Christ at the right hand of the Father, uh, initially, you wonder what to, what to do with that. What, 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 how are we to understand that? What does that really mean, that he was, he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father? Why does the Scripture represent Jesus? And not just that he's in heaven, right? Not just that he's with the Father, but he's sitting at the Father's right hand. What does that mean? And why does the Scripture use that language? And I have to tell you, congregation, that as I, as I studied this subject uh, this week, what a privilege it was to see how the Bible really unfolds this whole idea of sitting at the right hand in a very and remarkably rich way. A beautiful set of truths that takes us all the way back to eternity past, and brings us all the way forward into eternity future. The, the, the sweep, the, the extent of time that we'll cover in this evening's sermon, it cannot be bigger. It cannot be lengthened in either direction. It takes us all the way into eternity past and brings us all the way into eternity future. That's what I'd like to consider with you. It's a grand thought that stands before us today. So let's begin then with what it means to sit at, 
anyone's right hand. In Bible language, in Bible thought, right, in their minds, what did that mean to sit at someone's right hand? And the example, the beautiful example, right, a beautiful example of the fifth commandment here is King Solomon, right? When his mother Bathsheba enters into the throne room, Solomon has a throne set at his right hand, right? It is a position of authority, a position of, of honor. In this case, especially a position of honor. Honor your father and your mother. And here Solomon puts his mother at his right hand in the place of honor. So that already gives us a clue, doesn't it? That to sit at the right hand of anyone is something, uh, is the highest privilege that can be given to that particular person. I move to my second point now. What does that mean for Jesus to sit at the Father's right hand? What did it mean for Jesus to sit at his Father's right hand? Now, uh, we can read in, in Hebrews chapter 1 an interesting thought. In Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13, where the author of Hebrews says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? In other words, this is now what, uh, what, uh, what, is, is what we are to understand by sitting at God's right hand, that it is a place of tremendous honor and privilege. To none of the angels had God ever given that position. And again, we know that the book of Hebrews is emphasizing and teaching to us that Jesus is better. Jesus has a higher position in this particular chapter, a higher position than all the angels. And part of that is evidenced by the fact that God the Father gave Jesus the position at his right hand. To none of the angels had God given that privilege. So, a, a position of great power and authority. And what does it mean then for Jesus to sit at his Father's right hand? Well now, to understand this, my friends, we have to first grasp the fact that when Jesus came to this earth, he was on a mission from God the Father. Jesus came to this earth on a mission from God the Father. He was sent. Now, there's so many verses that you could quote in the New Testament, where Jesus talks about being sent. Many, many times Jesus speaks about how his Father had sent him on a mission. I'm going to read some of the clearest verses that we have in John 6 and verse 37. John 6 and verse 37, where Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now, like I said already, this takes us all the way back into eternity past. This is where it all begins. In eternity past, God the Father and God the Son have entered into this covenant relation. They have made this covenant together. God the Father has set his love on a people. And he has given that people to his Son. 
Again, I'm just, this is straight from John 6, 37, isn't it? That God the Father has set his love on a people. And he has now given them to his son. And he has given his son this mission to go to earth. To redeem that people. To save them. That is the will of God the Father. And he has commissioned his son to execute on that will. That's why I say we begin in eternity past. What we often refer to in our in theological language as the covenant of redemption or the covenant of grace in eternity. That glorious covenant between the members of the Trinity to save a people. God the Fa I remember in elementary school we were taught God the Father fought salvation and God the Son bought salvation and God the Holy Spirit wrought. Thought, bought, and wrought Again, just a way to try to remember it, right? That God the Father thought that he had a, a purpose and a decree in an eternity past. And God the Son was given the responsibility, was given the mission to execute on that decree. So that's where it begins in eternity past. And now let's go back to Psalm 110. As I said, we'll have a great deal to say about this psalm in the sermon this evening. Psalm 110. Now, in Psalm 110, we see that David is given this vision of the heavenly throne room. The Lord Jehovah says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, already when we read that, dear congregation, already we read that this is something, this is something deeply mysterious, isn't it? This is something deeply beyond us. And yet we can't miss that in this scripture, the Lord Jehovah is, is giving the right hand a seat, right? The, the, the throne on his right hand to my Lord. Now, we always want to turn in the, to the New Testament when we're trying to understand difficult verses in the Old Testament. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching at the day of Pentecost. And he teaches us how to understand this verse. So yes, sorry, you should turn now to Acts 2 and verse 34. Acts 2 verse 34 is the New Testament commentary on this Old Testament psalm. And in Acts 2 and verse 34, Peter says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he, that is David himself, says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, what is, what is Peter talking about? Well, here we have to back up. Back up to verse 33. Because David quotes Psalm 110 to prove a point. He's giving a proof text, right? As we often do. And in Acts 2 and verse 33, Therefore, talking about Jesus, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And now follows the proof text. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. Right? And then he quotes Psalm 110 and verse 1. What does that mean for us then? Well, that means, dear congregation, that when we read in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, that this is God the Father, Jehovah, the creator of the whole earth, saying to his son, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand. And not just 
And pay attention to the time here. Now, I know we, we're talking about something that's happening in the heavenly throne room using very earthly language. And so I, I mean no irreverence here, congregation. But it is, it's the truth, right? That Jesus has returned to heaven from his mission that he was doing on earth. And as he comes into the heavenly throne room, God the Father says, sit here at my right hand. And that has so much meaning. But think of where the Son has come from. Because the Son was on earth. He died, was buried, and rose again. That whole pathway of humiliation that we talked about over the last months. That's what was behind him. That was the mission that he was on, that he came to earth to perform. And having now completed that mission, he cried out on the cross, right? It is finished. And he rose from the dead on the third day. The grave was empty. He ascended up into heaven. And he entered into the heavenly throne room. And that's why I put as the heading there for my second point, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. He enters into the heavenly throne room. He appears once again before his father who gave him the mission. And he says, Father, mission accomplished. And what does the father say? What does the father think of that? Well, the Father speaks, not verbally here, but with an action. Well, he does speak verbally, right? Because it says, the Lord says to my Lord, but he, he gives an action. Sit here at my right hand. All that work that you did on the earth, all the mission that I sent you on, and all the work that you did to execute on that mission is complete. I, I, I shouldn't say complete. I'll, I'll say something about that in a minute. Let me just use the word accomplished. It is accomplished. It's finished. And now you may sit here at, the, at my right hand of honor because of what you have accomplished there. And that's what we see, dear congregation, in Psalm 110. That Christ has ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Now, let me say something about sitting at the Father's right hand. Again, I, I found this so richly rewarding a study this week that the Bible makes very explicit what is meant by sitting. And again, if I can ask you to turn with me in the book of Hebrews to, to a chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're told very explicitly what it means to sit and to stand. Look with me at Hebrews 10 and verse 11. Hebrews 10 and verse 11. Every priest stands, you hear that? Stands, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that is Jesus, but he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now you see very clearly the difference, don't you, between standing a person, and here it is, isn't it? I'm standing. I'm in the process of working, right? I have, I have a, a sermon to deliver. I'm standing to deliver it. The apostle or the author of Hebrews here 
He says the same thing about the priest, that when they're doing their ministering in the tabernacle, they stand. They do their work. Jesus, on the other hand, when he returned to heaven, when he entered into that heavenly throne room, and the Father says, sit at my right hand, there's a, there's a completion implied there, isn't it? There is a work that is completed. It is accomplished. It is finished. And now Jesus sits in distinction from the priest who stand. But Jesus sits. So there's, it's not just at the Father's right hand, which of course is the position of privilege and authority and honor, but it is also a sitting, which, is, which implies that his work is accomplished. And you'll notice that in verse 14, the chapter that we read in Hebrews 10 here, it says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That is the work that he did on earth, right? By the one offering. He gave his life as an offering for sin. And now he returns, he ascends up into heaven. He sits at the Father's right hand because that offering is finished. It is completed. That work is done. So, sitting. Very important, sitting. Well, now let's go back to Psalm 110 because perhaps some of you are thinking, is this work really finished? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. And yet we were just saying, right, that, that sitting implies that his work is finished. Well, my friends, the work that Jesus had to accomplish on earth is finished. That's why I insist this evening on making a distinction, a very important distinction. That when Jesus returned to heaven, the mission was accomplished, but not yet completed. I want that distinction to be clear tonight. The mission was accomplished. The work that Jesus needed to do, the mission he had to come to earth and to die for his people, that was accomplished. But the whole operation, my friends, was not yet complete. And that's why the Lord says to my Lord, right? And let me just, let me paraphrase this, right? God, Jehovah says to Jesus when he ascended back up into heaven, having finished the work that he did on earth, giving his life an offering for sin, he returns to heaven and God, Jehovah says, sit at my right hand, your work on earth is finished and I give it my divine stamp of approval. I approve of what you did in giving your life as an offering for sin. And now you can sit here at the right hand as a testimony to the fact that I approve, I accept the work that you did. Now I am going to make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. In other words, there are still enemies to be conquered yet. There still remain enemies to be subjugated. Yes, the work has been accomplished. It's as if a, a mortal blow has been dealt. The victory is, is sure, but the victory has not yet been obtained. Now that brings me to our text in 1 Corinthians 15, because this is what the Apostle Paul is teaching the people at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul here is speaking about the resurrection. Yes, this is my, my third point. Now, mission completed. I said that the mission was accomplished. But now let's speak about the mission completed. So in 
verse 20. Paul speaks about Christ rising first. He's the first fruits. And then after Christ rises, all God's people, all believers, will also be raised. Verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Verse 23, Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. And so that teaches us, my friends, that Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father is temporary. He sits in acknowledgement that the Father has accepted the work that he's done on earth. But there is a day coming when he will stand again, when he will come up off that throne because there's work to be done. The last enemy will be subjugated. So read with me again in verse, 30, in verse 23. And now verse 24. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When does he do that? When does he come up off his throne? And you might say he returns the keys of the kingdom to the Father. He says when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. When that time comes, when every enemy has been defeated, when every rule, when every authority, when every power contrary to God has been defeated and brought under his feet, then, and again, I, I feel so wrong, really, representing this in, in, in words. How else can we do it? It's as if Christ comes off his throne. He sits at the right hand of the Father, but he comes off his throne, and he presents the kingdom. And, and, and what does he say? Father, this is the work that you've given me to do. I've gone to earth. I've suffered. I've given my life an offering for sin. I've been exalted back to heaven, sitting at your right hand. And now the last enemy has been subjugated. The last enemy has been crushed. The seed of the serpent has been obliterated. His head has been crushed. And now I offer back up to you the kingdom that you entrusted to me. Then comes the end when he, that is Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign. Notice verse 25, for Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That means he reigns by sitting at the right hand of the Father. And verse 26 tells us that the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, it's not talking about God the Father is going to be subjected. God the Father is the one who gave him the mission in the first place. For he, uh, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, that is God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, that is God the Son. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, that is to to God the Son, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one, that is God the Father, who subjected all things to him, that is God the Son, so that God, God the Father, may be all in all. I know that's, that's kind of a complicated verse there, right? But once the work that Jesus Christ has finished, and every enemy is, 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 is cleaned up, you might say, every enemy is brought under subjection, then he will return the kingdom to the Father. 
and he will yet, you might say, return to his normal state. His mediatorial mission will be complete. The mission is accomplished when Christ ascends to heaven and sits at the Father's right hand. It is fully completed in his second coming when every enemy will be crushed and Jesus will return the kingdom to the Father and the mission will be complete. And that last enemy, my friends, is death. So often the mission of Christ is represented as bringing life. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now it doesn't necessarily, uh, we shouldn't push this to think that uh, once Jesus, once the mission is complete and Jesus returns the kingdom to the Father, that then Jesus will no longer be reigning. Right? Of course, Jesus' reign and his rule will continue, but his reign as mediator will have come to an end. That mission that God sent him to mediate between this people whom he had given to him will be finished. And in that sense, his reign will be ended. Of course, his sovereign rule as second person of the Holy Trinity will continue. Well, my friends, do you see the sweep of the text tonight? And all what is bound up in Jesus sitting at God's right hand. It takes us all the way back to God's covenant decree in eternity past with his son. And it takes us all the way forward into eternity future when God will be all and in all. And Jesus' mediatorial mission, he'll lay it down. That mission will be complete. Well, my friends, that is a, that is a grand vision, isn't it? But the application of it is so clear. Jesus is Lord. Do I need to say anything else this evening, my friends? This is the, this is the, the response that God seeks from all his people. In Psalm 2, he puts it, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Here we are taught, right? Jesus is Lord. This was the preaching of the apostles. To bring men and women, rich and poor, young and old, to this confession. Jesus is Lord. He's ruling right now, my friends. Right now, he is sitting on the right hand of the Father. Whatever that means for us, I know there's a deep mystery there. God has no right hand. Okay, well, in our own limited, childish understanding, we understand Jesus to be sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's mopping up these last enemies. So many of the enemies have already been destroyed, but there are still some remaining. And he's going one by one. And he's eliminating every one of these enemies. My friends, when was the day that Jesus Christ came in the power of his spirit and struck down the enemy of your soul? When was that day, my friends, if you can even remember the day, when God said, or when you said in faith, Jesus is Lord. Because at that moment, at that moment, Jesus as mediator, sitting at the right hand of the Father, destroyed the enemy who had control of your soul. You see how deeply personal this is to every one of us this evening. And what a glad rejoicing there should be in our midst this morning, or this evening, when we reflect back on that happy hour. Again, Maybe you don't even remember when it was. But that happy hour when Jesus as Lord came and cast out the strong man that had us in his grip. 
And he subjugated that enemy and crushed it under his feet so that we now become the adopted sons and daughters of the Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's striking down his enemies one by one. And every time a sinner comes to confess Jesus is Lord, another enemy falls. Hallelujah. My microphone has batteries died. I guess I'll just continue. The second point. The second point here. I'll just use this mic then. Ben, is that good? Okay. The second point. Uh, my second point of application here. No worse enemy. Now listen carefully to me this evening, my friends. There is a man in the U.S. military named General James Mattis. He actually served in the Trump administration. He led a group of Marines in 2003 in the second Gulf War. And he spoke to his men when that mission happened, the second Gulf War in 2003. And he said to his men many things, but he, he also stated this to them. He said, demonstrate to the world that there is no better friend and no worse enemy than a U.S. Marine. No better friend and no worse enemy than a U.S. Marine. You know, that caught my eye this week when I was thinking about that. Because this is my second point, my friends, that there is no worse enemy than Jesus Christ. A Marine is a trifle, a nothing, compared to Jesus Christ. And that's why, my friends, it's a great joy for us who know the Lord. But if there are those amongst us this evening who have not bowed the knee before King Jesus, then as a preacher of the gospel, I have to bring you also this hard message this evening. That you will be subjugated. You will be brought under the feet of Christ, either in this life or in the life to come. I can't help but think of our precious children who sat here on Easter morning and preached this message a hundred times better than I ever could. Because they told you then, dear congregation, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no worse enemy than Jesus Christ. And that's why we should tremble if we know that we are not right with God. I ask you this evening, dear friends, I don't dismiss anyone from this message, but I ask you to be honest with your own self this evening. How are you with God? Where are you with God? What is your relationship to God Almighty? If you are not a friend of God, then you fall on the negative side of this text, my friends, that God will crush you along with all his other enemies. And yes, that should terrify us. That should fill us with fear. And that should drive us to the no better friend that we can have in Jesus Christ. And so that's the preaching of the gospel. Even to those who are enemies of God this evening, if you have to confess that tonight, that there is still good news, that Christ still sits on the right hand of the Father. And he still holds open his hands to you, my friends. And he says that the moment, the moment that you confess that Jesus is Lord, 
in that moment, the enemy of your soul is crushed and you become a friend of God. Now that's the gospel tonight, my friends. Yes, you should tremble if you're not right with God, but don't stop with trembling. Fly, run to the Savior. And tonight, we'll see another one of those enemies fall. We'll see another enemy be crushed under the heel of Christ. We'll see the seed of the serpent take another blow to the head. And another one, another son or daughter will be one for Jesus Christ. That's the gospel for you. But I ask you, if you're not right with God, to reflect on these words. No worse enemy. My friends, I come to my third point of application. I want you to think about death tonight. I want you to think about death. And I know that there are many of us here who think about it regularly. There are elderly folks among us who know that death stands close at hand. But I want you to see death this evening. I want you to see it with the eyes of Scripture, with the eyes of faith, that it is a defeated enemy. Do you see it that way? Do you see death as Scripture would have you to see it? That, his, that Christ is already sitting on the right hand of the Father. Why? Because the, the, the subjugation, the crushing of all these enemies is already a certain fact. That work, you might say, is already completed. Or, sorry, already accomplished. It simply remains to actually be completed. Think of those boys that, that, that one day you got in a fight with somebody at school. Suppose that you, you challenge somebody. A big, strong person that you thought, oh, I don't know if I can, if I have much of a chance against him. But as you came up, and as you came up together, you saw him standing there, staggering, bleeding, broken, exhausted. And you looked at him and you thought, well, you'd think, this isn't even a contest. He's already, he's already so broken down and so exhausted that I'm not even going to, I'm not going to fight him. I mean, maybe not the best example, but still it gives us a little picture of what it means when we face death. That death is an enemy that has already, his, his doom is certain. His strength has been taken away. The sting of death is gone. He's an enemy so crushed, so battered, so beaten, that when you get in the ring with him, dear friends, dear elderly ones amongst us, when you get in the ring with that enemy, it's no contest. He's already been defeated. How do I know that? I know it because Christ is sitting on the right hand of God the Father. And that tells me that that work has already been accomplished. It's not that Christ is trying his best and maybe he'll get the victory. No, no. The victory is already a certain thing. It's a done deal. You might say it's just a, a mop-up operation that has to happen. My friends, I want you to face death in that spirit. My last point is victory. Victory. You know, we read from Psalm 110, those words, The Lord said unto my Lord, well, we learn in the book of Revelation that that psalm is also given to us. In Revelation 3.21, Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, He who overcomes, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Well, what that means, my friends, then, 
is that Psalm 110 has also said then to us that the Lord says to my Lord, but the Lord also now says to you, to you, to him who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, my friends, it's not simply the case that when we get to heaven, we will have glory. No, yes, but it's much more than that. We will have the glory of the Son of God himself. Now you say, what does that mean? I have no idea. I can't understand that any more than you can. But I know this, that it surpasses anything you can possibly imagine. That it has not entered into the mind of man to conceive what God the Father has prepared for those who love him. And that this text teaches us that we will share in the very glory of the Son of God, just as he shares in God the Father's glory, as we're taught here in Revelation 3, 21. What will that be, my friends, to share in the very glory of Christ himself? What a wonder. What a hope that fills us with as we face the uncertainties of life. It should bring us, my friends, to that point where we say, Come, Lord Jesus. Yea, come quickly. I pray it does bring you to that point, my friends, because the victory is certain. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you at the close of this service, very thankful that you have given us these truths to consider, which for us, Lord, are, are, are too large for us to even grasp. That from eternity past, Lord, you've settled on a people to save, and that you sent your Son to redeem them, and that he has taken his seat at his ascension into heaven at your right hand, and that he waits now. He waits until the last enemy is subjugated. And at that hour, he will rise and return the kingdom to you. Lord, what are these words even meaning to us? They're too high for us, but we rejoice in the glory of them. And we rejoice to know, Lord, that to him who overcomes, that you will also invite that one to take his place on your throne with you, to share in your glory. And so, Lord, we say with the church of all times and of all ages and all places, come, Lord Jesus, yea, come quickly. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn in the blue hymnal now to number 125. Number 125. O Lord, thou hast ascended on high in might to reign. Captivity thou leadest a captive in thy train. And what follows then in number 125, the four verses in the blue hymnal?
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and, be, and give you peace. Amen.